All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fuck, Tuckians? There you go. What the fuck, Tuckians? That's, I guess, that's the Kentucky what the fuckers. Some guy tweeted at me. I still look at it occasionally. He said, I hadn't said that in five years, so this is a big day. What the fuck, Tuckians? Bernie Toppin. Bernie fucking Toppin. Right? He's the guy who wrote almost all the Elton John songs. He's the songwriting partner of Elton John. He's been writing lyrics. The, almost all the lyrics, the majority of Elton John's lyrics uh, going back to the 60s. That's crazy. That's almost like interviewing a Beatle. So many hits. So many hits. He's got a new memoir coming out. It's called Scattershot. Life, Music, Elton, and Me. And it's pretty great. I, I popped around in it. I didn't read it all the way through. A lot of times I don't because I don't want to lead them. But it's kind of the title, and he'll tell you himself, is this sort of like he was, it's not an, a timeline arc, but he writes about Harry Nilsson, about John Lennon, about Elton, of course, but he writes about the scene. He writes about meeting Graham Greene. I mean, it's just sort of, and he writes the fuck out of it. He writes it, a uh, beautiful, beautifully written thing, this thing. And it's just a lot of life. He was a cowboy. Serious. I didn't know that. Maybe I should have. I imagine there's some deep cut rabbit hole Elton John fans who are like, Puff, how'd you not know that? That Bernie Taupin was a competitive cowboy. How did I not know that? Red Dirt Cowboy, Captain Fantastic, and The. Yup, there you have it. But uh, it was great. It was a, a, a fun conversation. So listen, I'm doing five shows at Helium in St. Louis next week, September 14th through 16th. Then I'll be at Wise Guys in Las Vegas on September 22nd and 23rd for four shows. Bellingham, Washington, I'll be at the Mount Baker Theater for one show on Saturday, October 14th as part of the Bellingham Exit Festival. And all my October shows in Portland, Oregon at Helium are sold out. There's a Denver show coming up that just went on sale. Yeah, Denver, November 17th and 18th at the Comedy Works South, which I've never been to. I'm a Comedy Works downtown guy. But it was someone's big idea to get me out to the suburbs. Not mine. We'll see how it goes. I usually do well in Denver, but that's gonna that should be up. That should be up for you Denver people. More dates forthcoming. The November 11th date in Albuquerque. That should be going up on sale soon. Be at the chemo, but I don't think it's up there yet. But uh, we'll see. Not many people go to Albuquerque. For some reason, it's not a great market for some reason. But I grew up there, and uh, I've been looking at that chemo theater since I was a kid. The front of the place is kind of beautiful. It's like an old kind of New Mexico style deco structure. And I've always, uh, I remember years ago, there was a comedy competition in New Mexico. I don't know if it was regional. I don't know if Colorado was involved, but I remember the winner got to perform at the chemo and I was not him. But anyway, I will be playing there and it'll be a homecoming and it'll be something. Yes. Um, so I think I told you guys about yeah, I definitely told you that. I've been watching these Don Rickles clips and they've been 
going around, like, you know, I, I talked to uh, Bill Hader about it, and he's been texting me Rickle stuff and Jonathan Winter stuff. It was just sort of in the ether. It's always there on YouTube. But I there was a while there I was, I was like, finding great comfort in watching Rickle seethe in Dangerfield. But it turns out, and I'm just finding out about this, that the Don Rickles channel on YouTube has been releasing never-before-seen specials. And today, they they just released Don Rickles Live in Toronto. Now, look, you can have your opinion about Don Rickles and whatever you want. But uh, if you like Don Rickles, you can go check it out for free on YouTube at the Don Rickles channel. For me, I always see a way to uh, love that guy. So, Fridge Guy update. The Ukrainian... Fridge guy, Alex is what they call him. As some of you who have been following, you know, he came with his son and it was quite a breakdown. The freezer door hinge broke off, uh, sending ball bearings all over the place. Uh, I didn't have the proper valve downstairs. I was wrong about it. Uh, And this has been going on for for months, for months with this guy to the point where if he says he's going to come by and fix something, I just take it with a grain of salt. So as some of you know, uh, at last, the last visit, because the hinge broke, my freezer drawer door has been propped shut with one of the freezer, freezer shelves from the inside. And that's been going on for a week or so, even though he got the hinge last week. So it all began again. When are you coming to like, like one of the last texts I sent, look, I get it, man. I'll get a new fridge. Fuck it. Just come fix the hinge so I don't have this, this, you know, this propped up door. I can't use the freezer. Just, you know, just let's just forget about it. Let's call it a day. Let's admit defeat and move on. And he's like, no, I'll come tomorrow. And then that day was like, I didn't know it was a holiday. I'll come tomorrow. And I'm like, all right. When? He's like 12 and three. That was yesterday. So I'm figuring like, well, that's not going to happen. So I went out to lunch. And right when I got out to lunch at 12.04, he's calling me. He's like, I'm in front of your house. And I'm like, oh, fuck. Make the food to go. Let's go. We got to go back. Ran back to the house. And uh, he was there with his son again. So I, I expected fireworks. I expected, you know, just insanity. He's like, no, today is it. We fix it today. And they pulled the freezer out. They're chipping ice off. They replaced the hinge. And then he's, uh, you know, he, he says to me, he says, um, okay, so th- he's holding up a thing that's got two tubes on it with some other valve or thing that goes into something else. He's like, I can't, uh, you know, put this in because somebody, I don't know if a uh, manufacturer or uh, installation, I don't know, uh, they twist tied it in the back. So I can't, uh, I can't, I can't get uh, at it. And I'm like, well, what, what do you want to do? Can you just move the fridge out? He's like, ah, let me, let me think about it. I'm like, okay, don't yell at me. And I'm like, so he thinks about it. He's like, I come back. I'm like, of course. I mean, why, why break up this thing we got going? There's no, no reason to break it up. Let's, let's just keep doing this for as long as you want. I'm on board. But then somebody put it in my head that there's a racket that some people run with where they come to fix the fish and then they slowly keep breaking it until you keep getting more and more parts. But 
this is not the case. This guy is a veteran fridge madman, repair guy. You know, this is his, you know, Leviathan, man. This, my fridge is his fucking Moby Dick. And he's going to, he's going to fix it. Because like this is like this has been going on for months. I'm telling you. Said, and yesterday I said, "Do you want money?" He's like, "No, no money, until we fix." And then I'm like, "How much is it going to cost then? As much as a new refrigerator?" He goes, "Nope, maybe seventy percent." And that and I was like, "Holy shit!" Well, that's like this kind of fridge, like ten thousand dollars. But I think he was kidding because I I pressed him on it. I said, "Tell me the truth. How much? How much is this all going to cost eventually?" He's like, "Well, maybe four hundred. And I'm like, "Fine. All right." Well, we're in and I look forward to seeing you again on your schedule, of course. So I'll just text you for a while until I get aggravated. And then I'll, I'll tell you, I'm going to buy a new fridge and then uh, you'll come within, you know, three to four days after that. So, okay. Uh, day before yesterday, I talked to Naomi Wolf. Whoa. I just fucked it up. I just did her biggest nightmare. I just set up her entire new book. I talked to Naomi Klein and the basis for this whole book that really turns out to be about late stage capitalism, encroaching fascism, uh, the nature of the, uh, the tribalized narrative of the second reality, the, what she calls the mirror world of the right wing, uh, infrastructure, media infrastructure, but it covers a lot of stuff, man. But the basis of it is her being confused with Naomi Wolf. That's what struck the chord eventually and and got her into the entire portal of this amazing book she wrote, which I read thoroughly and studied and underlined. I've been wanting to meet Naomi Klein for my entire life, it seems like. I never met her at Air America. I think she was there once or twice and I just wasn't around. I've just been impressed and... uh, blown away by her brain and and just her output is spectacular. As a, a liberal guy, she's full leftist. And, you know, I read that book and I feel a little guilty and a little like I'm not doing my part. But nonetheless, we got to really kind of have a talk jam here for about an hour. And it was just uh, a highlight of my life. So that's going to happen. You'll hear that on Monday. Naomi Klein, her new book is called Doppelganger, A Trip into the Mirror World. I don't know if you've read No Logo or Shock Doctrine or any of her other stuff, but uh, massive thinker, just great. I was was so happy it went well. Now, on another note, I don't know if I'm losing my mind or this is natural. So, okay. Okay. Here's what happens. Badlands, the Terrence Malick film starring Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek. The, the, this is the big Terrence Malick movie. The, I think it's probably the first one that really established him as sort of a, an auteur and a, a genius, if you want to throw that word around. This is a, sort of his early masterpiece about these two uh, he's, he, he turns out to be a killer. I think it's based on that guy. I think his name's Starkweather. And she's this teenage girl who he kind of kills her dad and drags her along for the ride. Um, it's a it's a it's a great movie. It's a challenging movie emotionally, but 
it's it's I think one of the great anti-hero movies of the 70s because despite the psychopathy of of Martin Sheen's character and the nature of their relationship you still kind of like the guy it's fucked up but anyway so I tell Kit let's go you know I've seen it but it's been a while and I said it's about a killer it's a guy who kills people for no reason out on the road out on the Great Plains and Sissy's basic Martin Sheen Warren Oates she goes, look, as long as they don't kill animals, I'm fine. And I'm like, they don't kill animals. Uh, it's just people. And she's like, okay, I can handle that. I just don't want to see any animals being killed. And literally within the first 10 to 15 minutes of the film, Warren Oates shoots a dog for no reason. And Kit, loudly, because she's Chicago, she goes, I can't believe you. I can't believe you. I mean, what the fuck? And I'm like, I, I didn't, I didn't remember what, I'm, what she's like. I'm like, I'm concerned that we're going to have to leave the theater. She's like loudly yelling at me because they killed the dog. And I'm like, it didn't even look at the, it didn't even look that real. It didn't even look that real. It's, it's not, you know, it's not real. She's like, I know. And there was a, there was a dead cow in it earlier. Cause he worked. At, so, so I could tell she's mad sitting next to me. And I'm like, oh my God, I fucked this up. She was mad. And then we sat there for a while and eventually I could feel her soften up a bit. And then I realized after about another 20 minutes, I leaned in and said, uh, I, I don't remember this movie at all. And she laughed. And then about 10 more minutes went by and I said, uh, I don't think I've ever seen this movie. <laughs> I, I don't know. I kind of remember the beginning. I guess it's possible I watched a bit of it. You know, but it was just, I watched Collateral the other night, the Michael Mann movie. And I'm pretty sure I saw that when it came out. I don't know when it came out. It's the one with uh, Jamie Foxx and uh, Tom Cruise, where Jamie Foxx plays the cab driver that's been forced into the situation of driving around this assassin by Tom Cruise. But I don't remember the ending at all. But I feel like I saw the movie. Same with Dog Day Afternoon. Like, did I see that movie or am I losing my mind? Is this a natural thing that some movies stick in your brain and some don't? Did I see Collateral? Did I not watch all of Badlands? Should I be concerned? I don't know. I certainly remember them now. Collateral is a pretty good uh, later Michael Mann movie. The conceit of it is kind of crazy, but... Pretty good movie. All right. So Bernie Toppin. Um, this is the guy. Daniel is leaving tonight on a plane. Saturday night's all right for fighting. Get a little action. Goodbye, yellow brick road. Yana, get back. Honky cat. Give it a bash about it. Boo, but I buy you do. Penny and the Jets. Goodbye, yellow brick. Did you do that one? Love lies bleeding in my... And you live your life like a candle in the wind. That's all Bernie, man. And Elton, but Bernie wrote the songs. You want me to do more? Maybe later. So the memoir is called Scattershot, Life, Music, Elton, and Me. It comes out next Tuesday. September 12th. You can pre-order it now. 
And this is uh, me and uh, Bernie Toppin. Talking Toppin. I was uh, I was texting with my producer this morning. I'm like, uh, so is Bernie a sir? Is he a sir? I'm not a sir. I'm actually a CBE. Yeah. That was just last year. Yeah. Um, What's the difference? Is Elton a sir? Yeah, Elton's a sir. Yeah. It's now. Let me make sure I get this right. It's MBE is the lowest one. Okay. OBE. Yeah. CBE, sir, knighthood. Knighthood. Yeah. What the hell do you got to do to get that? She got me. I don't know why they gave it to me. I mean, I don't even live there. I haven't lived there for most of my life. It's well, like, I mean, you get, uh, but a CBE, but a knighthood, that's two more up. No, no, one more up. A uh, one more up. Yeah, no, sir, sir is the same as a knighthood. Okay, a right. A knighthood exactly. is a right. sir. Right, yeah. But like, so why does Kingsley get that and not you? <laughs> you know what? Why I does, don't really give a shit. No, of course. But, okay, yeah. um... You know, it's funny. I never cared about stuff like that. But yeah. In actuality, it, it's it's kind of nice. It's kind of a nice recognition, you know. And I didn't have to do the whole rigmarole of doing anything in England. You uh-huh. know. Uh, oh, there was did, no ceremony? Well, there was, but yeah. we did it in L.A., which was much more fun for me because yeah. it's like doing it at home. Right, of course. So, uh, that so wor- it worked out great because all my friends came and— it was it was just a really nice afternoon. You Did know? they send somebody out? Did the uh, no the no? It was done by the the British consulate. Oh, okay. Yeah, it it was actually ended up being kind of fun, you know, and the medals. Yeah, sure. Kind of groovy. And so, well, you got it in a little case. And, yeah, it's in a little case. Yeah, I know. mean that means something. I know it's like, like it's very odd to me that Mick got one and Keith didn't. And that's got to be uh, not that Keith would give a shit, but I bet yeah, you. well, Keith wouldn't have accepted it anyway, you know, um, <laughs> yeah. and uh, was apparently upset that Mick accepted it, which I don't see why, you know. But I don't know. It, yeah. It's again, it, it's all it's all just periphery kind of sure. nonsense. You but know? it's sort of interesting though how in those relationships that have gone on for decades. Between guys like, you know, you and Elton have yours, but Mick and Keith have theirs. Right. But there's still this kind of like, you know, you suck up. <laughs> Why would you? You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, they, they've just made up a different uh, molecules, yeah. you know? So, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's kind of astounding. It's, it's something that you would expect. You yeah, know? I I, mean, absolutely. Keith, you know, Mick subscribes to all that. He likes that. He's He likes playing the sort of country gentleman. Yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, how do you like? I talked a few years ago. I talked to Alice Cooper, and for some reason, you know, he told me that you guys were really good friends. <laughs> and in that moment, I I couldn't put it together, you know, how that would happen, you know, because I just saw why is that? Because at the time, like you know, Alice, I always associated with a certain type of music. But when you really break down his music, uh, the the ballads are really the the greatest songs. Yeah, but I don't think it's about the music with right. Alice. It's it's the man. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and. I think everybody, everybody to this point today knows that Alice is just a, you know, all around good guy who plays golf, is a good Christian boy and, you know, isn't, as he always puts it himself, you know, he's playing a character. Sure. So, um, and he and I are like two peas in a pod. You know, we get on like a house on fire. We always have. Yeah. You know, we were almost like dorm mates. Really? Oh, yeah. When was that? Well, I mean, uh, 
late 70s. Okay. After know. the, what, he had put out like two records or one? Oh, no, no. Well, we actually, we actually first met, uh, I met him with Elton probably in 1970, 71. Oh, yeah. When he was still part of the band. Right. So, um, and we ended up doing an FM radio show together, like a morning show somewhere in the Midwest. Yeah. And we were both on it together. And obviously back then, you know, our perception of him was completely different then yeah. we did think oh man this guy's going to be a complete weirdo yeah and he was there with i think was it neil was the drummer of uh alice's band yeah i, I think know. i think that was his name yeah. neil big tall guy yeah man, like about yeah. six five yeah. you know so that was kind of a bit daunting too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um and he was drinking then too oh yeah yeah no yeah. i mean and that was early on so yeah. uh yeah he was there beer can in hand yeah and um but we just got on then but we yeah. didn't really hook up till much later in la yeah and we just frequented the same places and which just, places were those? All the normal sort of places. 70s? Like the, Late 70s? Yeah, 70s, you know, like the Rainbow oh, and yeah. the Roxy. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, the Whiskey yeah. and what have you. Yeah. And, um, yeah, we just kind of gravitated into the same orbit and yeah. really got on. And we would just hang out at each other's house like every day, all summer, you <laughs> yeah. know, just drink beer and yeah. watch TV. And, yeah, it was in play, you know, play pool. Yeah. And we just hung out. We'd go out at nights, yeah. you know, and that was the days of the Hollywood vampires. And, sure. And, you know, yeah. uh, members would come and go, and then they eventually Who was in went it then? completely. Oh, people, you know, on and off, like Keith Moon, yeah. Ringo, yeah. John Lennon on occasion. Yeah. Um, Mickey Dolenz. Yeah. Uh, who else? Oh, Harry Nilsson. Ah, uh, You know, Harry. just all the, just all yeah. the usual crew. And yeah. As I say, um Many many of them went on to different pastures, and I mean that. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Eternal yeah. pastures. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think— um, But you fact, and uh, Alice remain— I remained. think Alice, uh, you know, rem- Alice and I remain great friends. I just saw him a few months ago at his birthday party. and um, He's out on the road. But he's always out on the road. Yeah. But we, and he doesn't—he's he, like Elton. He doesn't have a phone. Oh, really? So if I need to get a hold of him, I just text his wife, you uh-huh. know, and she'll give him the phone, and we'll get back on it with each other. But yeah, we've we've remained great friends. Do you golf? No, good lord, no. Oh, that's he a... tried to get me into it once, and yeah. the only bit I liked was driving the car. Sure, you know, yeah, that was yeah. fun and getting out in the open air. But no, golf is not my thing. I mean. Uh, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, inc- I'm a complete sports nut. Yeah, which you know, sport? soccer? No, no, I. Sorry, no, football, I'm making assumptions. Football and baseball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to understand. You know, I've lived here since 1970. Time. You know, so is it 1970? Yeah. Well, I, I basically stayed here from the moment I got here because everything I wanted to achieve in life was in the U.S. So. Yeah. I, everything I did before that was a kind of push to get here ultimately. And well, it's interesting because, like, you know, in the book, you write very eloquently 
Uh, like this is like a real book, you know. You didn't have <laughs> you didn't have someone come in and listen to you tell stories, right? You exactly. wrote the you wrote the hell out of this. Well, thing. I appreciate that, and it, yeah. and it reads in the prose. It's beautiful, but you know, even with whatever uh, contention you have with with the English countryside, you write about it, you know, sort of half resentful and half beautiful. Well, I don't. I I have no. There was no contention when I was growing up in the British countryside. Other than you, you felt like your father pulled you into this farm life. Well, I no, and I didn't mind that. I yeah. didn't resent it at yeah. all. In fact, I I loved growing up in the English countryside when yeah. I was a small child. Yeah, it's just that my interests ultimately gravitated towards. U.S. history, U.S. music. I think it's interesting because, like in the in the book, it's weird that like uh, I, I don't think you mention your brother in the entire chapter. Um, no, I don't, and I've got two brothers. Because I, you know, I thought like, oh, this guy's an only child. He's out there playing <laughs> soldier. You know. Well, you have to you have to remember also. My brother and I were scholastically miles apart. Sure. He was. He went to a, what they call grammar school. I went to secondary school. He had his own set of friends. He was totally into soccer and yeah. cricket and right. all of those things. Right. I was completely a solitary individual. In fact, even in the, the, the house that I was born, which was literally, literally in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. I mean, there was no other kids around. It was just me and my brother. Even then, we didn't play together. Yeah. You know, he'd be kicking a soccer ball around on the lawn. What's the age difference? Uh, just two years. Wow. But I've got a younger brother who's 10 years younger than me. Oh, wow, yeah. So he wasn't born in the same area yeah, or yeah, the yeah. same place. He was born later on. And he's, you know, a U.S. Uh, lives here. He's lived here for yeah. probably half his life. You close? Also. No, he's, are we close? Yeah, uh, yeah oh, absolutely. No, I just, we just got back from his daughter's wedding. But he lives in Houston, mm. and so he's a Texas boy. My daughter just started A&M. So, oh, so she's there. Yeah, so yeah. she's an Aggie now, but she's on the rodeo team there too. So. The rodeo team? Yeah, yeah. She's a big-time barrel racer. Really? Yeah, really good, very competent. Out definitely out cowboyed me. I mean, you know, I I cowboyed for ten years. You did? Yeah. Hey, didn't you read my book? Not the whole book. What do you want from me, Bernie? <laughs> if I if I if I need, you haven't got to that part. If yet, I read no. the whole book, then I'll just lead you and say like, well, in the book, so yeah, you know, it's better that the stories come up organically. Like, yeah. what what was the cowboy period? Well, that was that that started in the. Uh, well, it was something that I always wanted to gravitate towards. Oh, yeah. And ultimately, from when you were a kid. You know, yeah, from when I was a kid. But, you know, I'd lived in L.A. for uh, since 1970. I was in the L.A. area all the way through to the early 90s. And by that time, I just said, OK, you know, you got to you got to go out there and live, you know, live dream? your dream. And so I did. So I bought a 30-acre horse ranch up in the San Ynez Valley. And you still have it? No. No, no you're I, not I, Because I, 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 I don't cowboy anymore because I blew my shoulder out. But like when you say cowboy, like what are you like what are you doing? Well I was I was raising horses and I was going out as a non pro cutter. Do you yeah. know what cutting is? Uh nope. Oh okay. Well it's work it's a it's an event where you work with cattle, cutting yeah. cattle out sure. and keeping okay. them out. Oh, right. the herd. Okay, yeah, you know, yeah, I'm yeah. sure you've seen it. Sure, no, yeah, yeah. It's it's pretty complex, you know. So anybody who's interested in finding out about it, just go online and look it up. It's 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 like 
equestrian ballet. It's yeah. amazing what these horses do. And you loved it. I loved it. I mean, it's the biggest, outside of sex, it's the number one rush you could probably have. It's just so interesting to me because, like, I don't know you, and obviously I, everybody in the world grew up with Elton John's music, and I always knew when I was a kid that, you know, you were the guy that wrote them, and there's on a couple records there's a picture of you. Well, all on all the first albums, yeah. I think from the first album all the way up to probably Blue Moves and a couple of albums after that, yeah. my picture was on the album sleeves, yeah. you know, so... And it was always I, I like, was who's kind of that part, guy? I was kind of part of the band, you yeah, know. I was right. I was part of the gang. You had the you had a pretty good haircut early well, on. Yeah, haircuts was never my thing. I, it was I an never liked one. My it was haircut. kind of a long one, then yeah, the yeah, short on yeah, top. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it kind of it kind of varied, but in in the pantheon of of uh, looks, my hair was not my number one attribute. I right. don't think. But it I, but it was of its time. Like uh, that that band in the seventies. Probably why right. I shaved it all off now. You got, you got rid of it. Yeah, got it all. No, you know, so. Don't even worry about it. But I guess the point that I was I was getting to was that you know you were able to live this you know unique like you know in the book, no one necessarily knows you other than the guy that wrote all these amazing songs. And, um, but, you, you know, but the cowboy information, I, I have to assume that's going to be pretty new information for a lot of people. I don't think so. I think our hardcore fan base knows oh, me, really? you know, because my sort of pseudonym is the Brown Dirt Cowboy from Captain Fantastic. Right. You know, so that kind of opened the floodgates and that gave me that character because that's how my character of those two sort of cartoon characters, Elton was the bright, flashy yeah, kind of Captain sure. Marvel okay, character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was the sort of earthy, you know, cowboy character. So this has been like in your mind since you were a kid, but then like with Tumbleweed Connection, is that like that cover, was that sort of a reflection of that? It was definitely, I was driving the bus on that yeah, one. You yeah, know, yeah. the thing is, it's kind of interesting if you look back on that, because the album before that, which was the what we call the Black album, the Elton John the album, yeah. which was a pretty sort of classically driven album, you know, songs like 60 Years On yeah. and, and a lot of those, King Must Die, they were very, as I say, had a classical bent to them. And then we did a complete complete 360 on you know on the next album and did this full-on americana album that was very much uh, influenced by the band you know once that was your choice well once i heard the band i realized that you know i could write those kind of songs up to that point i loved that kind of music but i didn't think it was commercially viable well what was it so storytelling uh, uh, basically what, that's yeah. because that's what I always wanted to do. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm very uncomfortable with the term songwriter for myself. I, yeah. I'm com uncomfortable slightly. Well, I hate the word poet. Yeah. Anyone who refers to me as a poet, it's like... You never refer anthem. to yourself as that's a poet? That's anathema to yeah. me. No, I don't refer... I'm not a poet. I'm but, a lyricist. But in, when in your youth... No, I mean, I met, dabbled in poetry, but right. that was poetry. Right. It, it wasn't song lyrics. So the band, now, did you have an uh, opportunity to spend time with those guys? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah they were friends of mine. In yeah. fact, again, sorry to say, in the book. Don't be sorry later to say on, Later we're on in the book, about, yeah. you'll read how Rick Danko and I became very, very close He was friends. so sweet, that guy. He was so great. He was the most kinetic person, though, I've ever met in my life. Unbelievable. He, he could not sit still. Oh, really? Now, I mean, a lot of that had to do with drugs right. obviously and it it affected all of us but for him i mean and it never it never uh 
it was a hindrance to him. Yeah. But he was the most connective, kinetic personality imaginable. But he was also incredibly talented. Unbelievable. I mean, he could he could pick up anything and play it. And his voice. Yeah. What a voice. Well, that was that was the magic of the band too. Yeah. They had three incredible voices in Richard Manuel, yeah. Rick and Levon. Levon yeah, you no know. doubt. Um, and then they had a great songwriter in Robbie. Yeah. You know, they. They were probably my favorite band of all time. Well, I mean, it's, it's interesting because they changed a lot of guys. I mean, you know, Clapton never recovered from the band. No, well, he, he, both him and George Harrison wanted to join the band. Yeah. You know, yeah. and so, yeah, they had an incredible effect on everybody. But I can't emphasize enough how they gave me the courage to write the kind of stories and songs that I really wanted to write about. Yeah. And it happened just like that, you know. So after that classically leaning Elton John album, suddenly we had this, you know, sepia-soaked yeah. Americana album. Yeah. And people, what's great is people accepted that at the time. Sure. And we followed that on with Mad Men, which was kind of a combination of both. Yeah. And my first real vision of America because... Tumbleweed was written, all written before we even came to the States. So it was your, it was your uh, uh, a sort of fantasy perception. It was my fantasy perception yeah. of everything from the American West to the Civil War to characters that inhabited. And then Madman was what I perceived of America when I actually got there and drove out to, you know, Middle America yeah. and the American West and saw all the places that I'd only dreamt about and heard about in song and fiction yeah. and movies. And I wanted to see the real thing. You know, when I grew up, Roy Rogers and Gene Autry and the Long yes. Ranger didn't yeah. cut it for me. Right. You know, yeah. I wanted to see the, the, the stuff that really affected me was the stuff I heard about in songs. Yeah. You know, the people like Johnny Orton sure. and Marty Robbins were singing about, and then later Peckinpah and, you know, earlier maybe John Ford a little, but I, I couldn't stand John Wayne, but I liked the Vistas, you know. Sure, the Searchers is a so, big one, huh? Well, I, I, I'm not a Searchers fan. You're I not? Never, no, I never understood why anybody thought it was a good movie it's it's in, got an incredibly hokey sense to it too. yeah but there's that that turn in that movie where you know john wayne was willing to kill the 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 girl yeah but That's pretty heavy you know some of the some of the peripheral characters sure, of course. were yeah, really yeah, yeah. really boneheaded I, yeah i agree um but i, I also agree with you about the wild bunch yeah, okay, well, that, that's, you know, a, that's the, number one for me. But um, I I was much more affected by things like High Noon. Yeah. Um, Red River, I thought, was pretty good. Yeah. Um, and then the early the early Peck and Par things, like Ride the High Country, was a great movie. That's an unbelievable movie. Yeah, and people don't give that. The, I mean, to me, that's much better than The Searchers. But, well, that's because he, stu- uh, he was a studio guy then, so he had to work within the confines of— Right, yeah, and, right. And I like the the ballad of Cable Hogue. I mean, oh, yeah, I, yeah. It, I mean, great. it's more laconic and sure, it's a little sure. more laid back. Yeah. But, yeah, Peckinpah was a master at that. He really he really knew what the West was like, yeah. you know. And, I mean, even even Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, great. Great. Even, even though, you know, it's the characters are a little off kilter, you know, Chris was 
you know, fantastic, but sure didn't look like Billy the Kid, you did, know? <laughs> did you see that movie, Old Henry? Oh, yeah. Loved oh, my that. God. Loved that movie. How great is that fucking that movie? That movie was fabulous. Because, like, you know, when Tim's just on that porch with that slight angle, right. you don't know it until the end. Right. But, like, all the way through it. I loved that movie. Yeah. And I, hardly anybody, I'm sure, saw I it. I talk about it all the time. Oh, good for I, you. I talk about it yeah. with Tim. Well, I always push it. Two thumbs up for me, too. Oh, good, good. So that's interesting. So Madman was really your interpretation, your first reflection on the country. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I sort of wrote it as a travelogue, you know, my first my first look at the vistas and and characters that inhabited the heartland. Now, let me ask you a question going back to the band in terms of its influence on, you know, a few, well, three primary British artists that we just talked about. I mean, what was it? Was it it was because it, it seemed like an honest representation of America? Because, like, all those guys were kind of deep in blues and, you know, Everly Brothers or whatever. But what was it about the band that resonated so deeply? Well, I mean, I guess you can't speak for Clapton, but, I mean, for yourself. Well, I think it—I it, mean, I, I think I'm speaking for probably all of those people yeah. that fell into the web of the band. It was completely different. Mm. I mean, it was earth shatteringly groundbreaking. You know, I mean, up to that point— in, my humble opinion, they invented Americana. Yeah, you know that yeah. they had the balls to sing about stuff that was that seemed completely timeless. Yeah, and from another era. Yeah, and incorporated all of those things. I mean, from the moment that our Big Pink started with those toms and tears of rage, um, you know, with that and, that and, yeah, organ, and you yeah. kind of go. Where is this coming from? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just like it came out of the ether. Yeah. You know, it 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 wasn't it wasn't rock and roll. It wasn't country. It wasn't blues. Right. It was just this. It seemed brand new, but it seemed so old. It, at the but same all those time. were represented. You know, they were all represented. But it wasn't. But as I said. It seemed old, but mm -hmm. it seemed brand new. It seemed so fresh. Yeah. And they weren't afraid. It wasn't loud either. It was so subtle, yeah. you know. And um, is, is there, I, I, I can't, you know, I can't emphasize enough the effect it had on me. And it really, really was the blue touch paper after sort of hearing Marty Robbins sing El Paso years before. Yeah. You know, it was a continuation of my education into what could be achieved lyrically and musically. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's interesting that, and, I've, and I know this about the blues as well, that when you were a kid and you were listening to what was available to you in, that represented America or watching it, that there really wasn't stuff available, that you had to meet a guy right. who was an American right. to turn you on to... Uh, the Lewin, yeah, the Lewin brothers, Lewin brothers, right, and yeah, and, yeah, and, and Lefty Frizzell, yeah, and yeah. Kitty Wells, and right. people like that. But the thing is that that guy was sort of my um, my contact to that kind of music, but. A lot of us had those kind of people. That's why the people in Liverpool, yeah. you know, heard so much of that music because the military, the, the mer you know, the merchant seamen coming okay. back from yeah. abroad, coming back from the states. Liverpool was a hub, you yeah. know, a seafaring hub. Right. So so much music came through it's, that that port. Yeah. And it's like, you know, you think about when 
Mick met Keith on a platform at Dartford, yeah. you know, and one of them had a Robert Johnson album right, under right. his arm. The Robert you know, Johnson. You know that he didn't get that Robert Johnson album at a record store. Yeah. You weren't going to find that there. There was yeah. another way he found that. Yeah. And so that's... We, all of our my contemporaries and some of the few beforehand, you know, they found their way to that kind of music by the same kismet that I just happened to be at the house next door to an American serviceman yeah. who was helping out with the British Air Force and had bought these records with him. And when I heard that, you know, coming out the window, it was like manna from heaven. You know, it was like, you know, what the hell is that? That's not what I'm hearing on the radio. Yeah, that's yeah. not Jim Reeves. That's yeah. not Slim Whitman or yeah. Roger Miller. Right. That's the real deal, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. And that, so it must be, it just kind of must have just blown your mind. I'm getting like a little hairs on my neck <laughs> just talking about it. But but somehow or another, you and Elton were able to, you know, transcend form in a lot of ways. And, and it's a rare thing. You created your own sound as well. Well, I think, I think because when I met Elton. The, what year was that? Uh, 1967. Because like they re-released that record. What was it, the Regimental Sergeant Zippo? Oh, well, that was the first record that we ever made that never got released. Right, exactly. So it wasn't actually re-released. Oh, no, so it's just new. Because it, it was never released in the first place. It was just shelved. But, it, but it's interesting because, like, it, on that record, like, it seemed, like, once Empty Sky comes out and stuff, it, it seemed like you guys were on your way to something totally unique, and that record more reflects the sounds that were happening. Well, I think if you're talking about Empty Sky, you're talking about what was really prevalent at the time everything was it was in the sort of ashes of psychedelia people were drawing uh, inspiration from science fantasy and yeah. science fiction whether yeah. it was king crimson or Procol harem you know or pink floyd right. everybody was mining the same material, yeah. you know, and um, so I was trying, you know, at the time I was trying to emulate that too because I was reading a lot of the same, the same material. Because you felt like you had to. I, I, yeah, I did. I felt I needed. I mean, I liked that stuff, but I it. It, it was almost like I was grasping for straws because everybody was probably doing it better. Yeah. And I, I wanted to gravitate onto that, um, that, that sort of a more American-based music, Americana country. But I, would, I guess you could call me in the closet at the time because I didn't think it would be acceptable, huh. which again goes to the band. You know, when yeah. the band, I heard that and I started hearing some of the things like Johnny Cash at Folsom Prison. Oh, my God. And, yeah. you know, you hear all this music and you go, you know what? This can, you know, this can be made uh, palatable and commercial. And then, you know, People, people started realizing the same thing and were jumping onto the same boat too. But, but it's interesting because with Elton, and we'll go back to when you met him, like, you know, he's not that guy, is he? Well, Elton is a sponge. And, and let me go back yeah, to what I say about yeah. when 67, when yeah. we met, 
One of the things, obviously, that we bonded on, beside the fact that we wanted to be songwriters, we didn't really know how to go about so it. So you both sent into a, what was yeah, it? Yeah, we answered the ad in the New Musical Express yeah. for uh, Liberty Records. And did you know anything about... Like, I didn't the, even know how to write a song. So I didn't the, know what writing a song meant. So the Brill Building was out of your... You yeah, no, 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 I, yeah. I wasn't in that caliber. I just... But you knew about I it? I was grasping at straws, right. you know. I wanted to learn how to do it, but right. I was incapable of it. I mean, I barely understood. It was I was only a few years out of realizing that the person that sang a song on a record didn't just make it up. Right. You know, I thought when I was a little kid, I thought I didn't look underneath and see those names in right. parentheses sure, underneath. I just thought whoever was singing the song simply, it was theirs and they made it up. I thought that too. I, it, it took until like uh, less than 10 years ago, I was talking to Nick Lowe <laughs> And, you know, I believed like he was writing from some sort of first person point of view right, when right. he wrote The Beast in Me. But it was a, kind of a monumental thing for me to realize that, no, songwriters make things up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> that's that's the beauty of it for me. That yeah. is the thing that I have always aspired to do is to invent, to tell stories, to lend from life, but also lend from fiction, create your own fiction, mix it all up together. Yeah. That's that's what's fun. That's so, that's why I want, you know, I think of myself as a cinematographer. Yeah. I'm, I'm continually poaching from life, you but, know? So tell me about, so in 67, you meet Elton. Yeah, so we bonded on music, yeah. all kinds of music. The yeah. thing is about us is that we have always been appreciative of every genre possible, which is why I think our canon in general yeah. has included all kinds of music, you know, influences from, you know, I'm a complete jazzer. It's all I really listen Who to. Who are you guys? Oh, pff, everybody. You yeah. Know, Ellington, you know, Big Coltrane. Uh, it's Charlie Parker's birthday today. Yeah, and and it's not lost on me that the year I started was the year that John Coltrane died. So you know, sixty-seven, yeah. I started, and he left us. Yeah, know? yeah. So, Did you see a lot of those guys? I didn't see enough. I yeah. saw quite a few at Shelley's Manhole the first couple of years I was in L.A. I used to go there all the time. So that's I, interesting. That's, so that's really your thing, and that's a, like it takes a certain mind. To lock into that. But it wasn't back then. I mean, I came to jazz a little later. Okay. You know, when I first started with Elton, like Elton didn't listen to country music, and I didn't listen to a lot of soul and R&B, which he was totally into. Right. So we blended all that. You know, he'd say, have you heard this? And I'd say, have you heard that? Yeah. And we would, you know, buy records, and we didn't have much money, but he had a little bit more than me because he was getting more money because he sang on the demos, you know. Yeah. But back then, we were just jobbing songwriters trying to make a living and so we had very little money so what we had what we didn't give to his mom you know as a throw in for some rent yeah um you know we'd spend on records and uh, what we'd do would we'd go to this place called music land in soho and barrack street and uh we'd spend all our time in there and they what they would do is they would get the american imports in every week yeah. of albums that weren't going to come out in England for another probably month or two. Yeah. So we were gravitated to that. So we'd get all this stuff like Electric Ladyland or the first Leonard Cohen album, wow. you know, months before it came out in, yeah. in the UK. It seemed to me that in the late 60s in, in London, it was crazy with music. 
in terms of everyone trying, like Fleetwood Mac was around, Peter Green was around. Right. And uh, and were you there when Hendrix came over? No, I, I was on the sort of cusp of, he went out as I came in, kind okay. of literally. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was a veritable minefield of music. And obviously, so much of the blues, yeah. um, you know, later on in the book, you know, my whole friendship with Willie Dixon, which was, you know, one of the the biggest, you know, the great blues uh, songwriter friendships of my yeah. oh, greatest really? friendships of when my did, life. When did you meet him? Uh, in the eighties. Mm. Um, so he was old. Yeah, I I spent a great deal of time with him and his family in the last few years of his life. In fact, I was I was responsible for getting him inducted in the Songwriters Hall of Fame because I was absolutely incensed when I found out that he wasn't in there. Oh, he wrote all the good songs. <laughs> Hello. You yeah. know, and you think about some of the people they put in there, you know, somebody who wrote a couple of songs in the eighties, you know. Right. I was I was absolutely just went through the roof. And what was your relationship with him? We were just friends. Yeah. I mean, I made I made a, a at my fortieth birthday party. Somebody said to me, "What would you like to have at your birthday party?" And I said, "Willie Dixon," just as a joke. Yeah. And they got in touch with his people, and he turned up, and we just hit it off, and I hit it off with his family, huh. and we just got on like a house on fire. I, I saw him in the eighties. I loved loved him dearly. Yeah. yeah, I saw him perform, and in fact, I uh, put together a benefit after he died for the Blues Foundation. Um, but anyway, what I'm what how we started that yeah, is 67. that so much of the music that he wrote, as I said in uh, when I inducted him into the Hall of Fame, I said the the bands in the in the 60s in England, blues bands in the 60s would, wouldn't basically have had a set list without Willie Dixon. Yeah, of course. You know? Yeah. And because of all the blues tours that came to the UK and Europe, they bought all that music and were respected far more in the UK yeah. than they were at home. You yeah, know, yeah. They were treated like kings yeah. when they were treated like shit here. Yeah, it you took know? you guys to introduce us to the blues. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so what we did is we took it back to the States. Yeah. And so we it rebounded back here. Yeah. And but yeah, I mean, if it wasn't for those guys, I mean, there would there would be no blues yeah. bands in England. And also, it wouldn't have t it wouldn't have taken the jump that it did. Like I can't, I'm a Peter Green freak. Right. And and like the way he played guitar to me. Yeah, he was a magnificent guitar. It was player. unbelievable yeah. and heavy and sad. Yeah. It's like Mick Taylor, you know. Yeah, Mick Taylor too. Uh, yeah. Mick Taylor's one of the greatest guitarists come out yeah. of England. Do you know him? No, I don't. No. I never, never met him. It's that, I, I just assume everyone knows each other. I, I know most people, yeah. but there are, there are significant uh, characters that for some reason I never really ran into. So in 67, when you and Elton start doing this stuff and you're putting together, you, you know, I guess the songs that ended up on the regimental Sergeant, Sergeant Zippo, Zippo yeah. what, was, what was the, how much were the Beatles hanging over you? Well, the interesting connection with us and the Beatles, I mean, I think the Beatles affected everybody, even if it was subliminally, I don't sure. know. But the interesting connection with us and the Beatles was we were signed to Dick James Publishing. Dick James published the Beatles. Yeah. So the Beatles would come to Dick James's studio to cut demos sometimes, yeah. especially Paul McCartney would yeah. do a lot of stuff there. And so... Um, 
there was that connection. But, I mean, the Beatles affected everybody. In fact, there's a good story <laughs> yeah. about when Elton, before Elton was making records, you know, he used to play on other people's records over at EMI. Yeah. And we'd go over to EMI, and our first encounter with a Beatle of any sort Yeah. Elton was doing uh, a novelty record with an English band called the Baron Knights, uh -huh. you know, who used to do these send-ups of the Bee Gees yeah. and all these, low, you know, uh, contemporary bands. Yeah. And Paul McCartney just walked into the studio one day because he was working in the uh, next studio doing uh, the White Album. Oh, God, yeah. And we we all looking at each other... Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's Paul McCartney, you know, okay. <laughs> yeah. That cool, that cool. Yeah. And the thing is, this band, the Baron Knights, had supported the Beatles, so they knew him. And they're all going, hey, what you doing, Paul? You know, yeah. and Paul goes, oh, I just wrote this song, want to hear it? And he sat down and played Hey Jude. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> and so Elton and I, it was like, okay, well, <laughs> we're not going to forget that one, are we? <laughs> I was like, you know, not unlike the band, like when I watched that, the, Excuse me. the Peter Jackson documentary right, footage, right. I think that they had that thing that the band had, which was this alchemy that you can't even explain how these guys just magically pull stuff out of the air sometimes. Right. And I think people try to overthink it too. Yeah. You know, it, people will just indulge themselves to points of how so? insanity. Well, just trying to figure every single right. millisecond yeah. of the Beatles' right. existence. Yeah. You know, it's uh, okay. You know what? They wrote some of the best pop music of all time, yeah. if not the best pop music yeah. of all time. Enjoy it as it is. Don't yeah. try to figure, you know, go go into the studio and, and take the tracks down and see what such and such was doing. Yeah, but, it, it was so natural, though. Did you watch that stuff? Yeah, I did. I, did, did. I thought it was a little long. I mean, there a were... long, but didn't you find there was a, huma a humanity to it? That, But you, I mean, they were around when you were coming up. But like, for me, I'm like, oh, my God. You really got a sense of their personalities. Yeah, no, no doubt. I mean, it was wonderful. As I said, I could have done with a little less. There were there yeah, were sure. portions where it seeped a little into boredom, I thought. But then, you know, you'd get something like um, McCartney playing get you know, yeah, get back on the bass, yeah, riffing yeah. it and yeah. writing it basically yeah. Yeah. in front of John. Yeah. On the bass. Yeah, yeah. You yeah, know, yeah, playing yeah, chords yeah, on yeah, the bass, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. So things like that were phenomenal and yeah it, it was wonderful but as i say you know i i'm not one of those i'm not a beetle surgeon who wants to sure understand every yeah, yeah, millisecond yeah. of their careers so when you and, and elton started working together i mean was it initially back and forth collective like were you you know were you coming up with verses alternating or you know? well the most of the first writing that we did was at his mom's uh apartment in uh in the north of uh, Northwood Hills, yeah. in in a suburb of London, yeah. and you know we had a bedroom at the back, and yeah. uh, there was a piano in the front room, so it was it was kind of like our little Brill building. Yeah. You know, I'd be writing stuff in the bedroom, yeah. and I'd take it to the living room and say, "Here, I just wrote that. What do you think of this?" And he'd go, well, "Wait a second, listen, I just wrote this to that last thing that you wrote." And, you know, he'd play me that and I'd go, that's cool. You know, we'll go down to Dick James studio tomorrow and lay these down. We yeah. made demos of them. And that's how we wrote all of those very, very early songs. Were they demos to record for Elton or for anybody? 
Well, Elton was an Elton at that point, yeah. you know, so there was no Elton. Right. There was no thought of him actually being a performing right, artist. Right. That came a few months later. Um, so these were mainly a cross between songs that we were being somewhat forced to write for middle-of-the-road artists who, uh, the, in those days, you know, depended on songwriters, people like that were currently popular, people like Lulu and Scylla Black, Cliff Richard, oh, Cliff Engelbert Richard, yeah. Humperdinck, Tom yeah, yeah. Jones. Yeah. Um, Did they record any of your songs? None of them. No, because <laughs> they were terrible. They weren't good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because we weren't good at writing that kind of songs. Yeah. And then ultimately, an A&R guy came to work at Dick James, who was sort of, I think, brought in to modernize the establishment a little. Yeah. And he kind of looked at our stuff and said, quit writing this crap. You know, this is good, what you've been writing on the side here. And he pinpointed a song we'd written called Skyline Pigeon, which was basically one of the first songs we wrote that we went, I think we're onto something here. This is actually quite a good song. And that literally got covered three times, I think, in the first couple of months. Yeah. So, and we ultimately recorded it on the, uh, the, f the first official release, which was Empty Sky. Yeah. Um, and so this guy really kind of put, start pushing us in the, in the, right direction and he, a guy called Steve Brown who actually ended up uh, producing the Empty Sky album. So when you like what is the because uh, it, jumping around the book you, you, you seem to not have a necessarily have a discipline around around the song running it just comes to you. <laughs> I I sometimes wonder I, I'm completely undisciplined in certain areas yeah. and very disciplined in other areas but, yeah. but the Areas that I'm disciplined in are more banal. Yeah. You know, it's like I keep a tidy house. I keep my clothes straight, you yeah. know. I'm slightly undisciplined in my work ethic, you know, because I'm all over the place. Yeah. And I've got so much I want to do and say that I don't know sometime when to do it and and when not to do it and should i do this today or should i do this today should i go in my studio and work on my art you know i as far as writing songs i only ever write songs nowadays yeah and and, and in the last couple of decades when we're going to make a record okay you know elton will call me and say feel like making a record in maybe a couple of months, you know, want to start thinking about some ideas. That's when I'll start writing. Huh. I'm not, I'm not the, uh, the textbook songwriter who gets up, goes into the, you know, office and, you know, that's a kind of Diane Warren thing, yeah. you know, which is great. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. a professional songwriter. Right. I don't think of myself in those terms. I've never thought of myself in those terms. As I say, there's a whole bit at the beginning of the book where I question what a songwriter really right. is. And I don't think of myself as that. And I don't even think of myself as, I suppose I am a lyricist. But again, somebody asked me what I do. I say I'm a storyteller. Well, it's interesting in the book about, like, you know, because you're very uh, well-read. I believe so, yeah. yeah and yeah. that, you, you know, there was this uh, sort of this interesting, you know, encounter with Graham Greene. Right, right. Who, you know, was arguably one of the greatest novelists of, of ever. In my estimation, probably the greatest, and, and but I, I'm, I'm sold. Yeah, and, and it was just, even with the backstory of owning that copy right, of right, Bocas right. Lolita and stuff, that, you know, the... 
the 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 actual meeting, you had to sort of frame it in, in a way that was well, okay. That's what I got. Well, it was it was again kismet, and you know, an ac- a, a beautiful accident. Yeah. You know, it's just because I'd agreed to meet somebody at the Savoy. Yeah. And um, just happened, you know, I thought, okay, got to go to the Savoy bar. It's a yeah. bar that I've never been to and is legendary. Yeah. And boom, there He's, he uh, is, man. You know, and it's <laughs> yeah. like, it's, am, I, am I dream? You know, next to hearing the band album, that yeah. was another one of the great, yeah. you know, great moments of yeah. my life. You yeah. Know, because, and especially the fact that he was not dismissive of me you know yeah he took he i wouldn't say he took a shine but i think he he saw that there was a, a true glimmer of interest there yeah. and knowledge yeah 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 it's 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 a great moment when you meet a hero and they're not oh yeah i mean dismissive or assholes and, and i don't think i i can honestly say that's probably the great greatest accidental meeting i've ever had in yeah, my life yeah 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 it's a good one so it's not unlike you to to just have a phrase come to your head, set it aside, and build it out later. Oh yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. and especially especially in the early days when I was really doing a lot of traveling, you know, my my pockets and my uh, travel bag were littered with. Uh, men scrawled stuff I'd scrawled on menus, yeah, napkins, yeah. Uh, vomit bags from planes, you <laughs> yeah. know, anything I could get, a hotel stationery. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I used to have a whole box of it. And then when it got to be time to sort of work on an album or work on songs for an album, I'd get all these pieces out and they'd have sort of first lines. Yeah. They'd have title song titles on yeah. them. I always like finding interesting song titles. Yeah. Um, you know, because when I used to flip through albums in a record store, the, the things used to appeal to me would be albums that had interesting song titles. Yeah. You know, yeah, um, sure. something that was kind of mundane, maybe pushed aside, but yeah. that, that was w- definitely one of the, the components that, that I I worked with, but a lot of the song titles were taken from lines in the songs. Well, yeah, I mean the the title of a song is usually used in yeah. in the chorus, yeah, but, anyways. But so. you had to pick which one was going to happen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, but I would I would I didn't. I mean, I certainly didn't do the Bowie trick of just writing stuff out, throwing it in the air, and then putting it together like a jigsaw puzzle. Oh, you yeah, know, is yeah. what which that was is a what Burroughs he, thing, like a yeah, cut which up, is yeah. what he did. You yeah. know, I, that wasn't my the way I like to work. You know. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I just collected and and ultimately uh, pieced things together. I just saw it was so funny because I there was a which song did I just watched? I just hosted a screening of Dog Day Afternoon. Oh yeah, and Amarina. Yeah, is the opening thing, and that was Lumet was like, "But that's the song we want." Yeah, it's it's funny. I mean, everybody says that it doesn't really um, fit you know, the movie, but now you can't watch the movie without hearing it yeah. and you understand it totally. Yeah. You know, there is something about seeing those New York streets in the 70s, yeah. but it, this is a song that is basically a country song yeah. about the country, yeah. not about urban chaos. Right. But for some reason, it fits. Yeah. And I think that's happened a lot of times with people's songs. You know, you don't think that's, I guess that's the fun of um, putting music in movies. You know, I think if I'd 
done anything else in my life, I would have liked to have done that as a job. That would have been fun. It feels like some of the songs, even some of the albums, unfold like movies. I mean, I don't know that you can, uh, I, I don't know how you think about it, but it seems like for some reason, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road plays yeah. as a movie. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely the most uh, cinematic of our albums because they are, for the most part, all uh, story driven. I mean, if you think about it, there's, I think there's only like one, what you would call romantic ballad, love song, if you want, yeah. on the album. Everything else is pure filth and about, you know, huge human flotsam and unsavory characters and weird robotic bands. And, you know, it, yeah, it's a con it's kind of like a comic book, a graphic novel, if but you for will. For me, though, that moment where I guess it's uh, Justin comes in after uh, uh, a funeral for a friend, you know, and then goes into Love Wise Bleeding. Right. It's like, that's like one of the greatest moments in music. Well, I'd like to think so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's certainly a good, it kicks off the album really oh, it's well. Unbelievable. You know, but, uh, and again, it's like, if you want to, it's like Madman Across the Water is, as I said earlier, is, is like an American travelogue. Yeah. You know, it's a primer for the American West. And so then when you get into, uh, but then there's a couple records before Goodbye Yellow Brick Road where you deal with these characters. Yeah. Well, I, I, um, I think don't shoot me and honk and honky, honky chateau. chateau. Uh, yeah, they they kind of played middle ground. I think there was a bit of everything on that. But were you always gunning for hits? Was that part of? Not me. I I, did, I had no idea about hits. Never. You know, I think. Uh, and I'll tell you what, we yeah. never set out to write hits. We set out to write albums. But when I was a kid, I remember Honky Cat was a big hit. Well, I know that the the one thing I do know is that Honky Chateau was our first number one album okay. in the States. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then Honky Chateau, I believe, had, I think Rocket Man was yep. on there. Uh, but, uh, you know, Elton is the guy who knows every, every fact about, about charts, his work. you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. where they, he knows every place he's played you know, what the capacity is, when he played it, you yeah. know, and he knows the same about our music, you know, and how it fared on the Billboard charts. I mean, he's a Billboard devotee. Yeah. Um, he, he, you know, he just still follows it. You know, he follows the records, the artists on it. I, you know, I Crocodile could, Rock was a big hit. That that one that was, was everywhere. yeah, but that was that was later on. Yeah, don't shoot that, me. Yeah, that was that was a big hit. And too. Daniel. Daniel was a big hit, too. Where, where did that song come from? Um, Daniel was based on a story in Time magazine that I read on a plane about the Tet Offensive and uh, guys coming back from Vietnam. And it's funny how the ones, the ones that came back to, if you want, the urban jungle and yeah. the, the um, urban cities yeah. were sort of... Uh, ripped on by the, the people that called them baby killers. Yeah, and, right. You know, which was unfortunate, but the guys that went home to the Midwest were treated like heroes. Right. And so the idea of it was that it's supposed to represent the guys that went back to the Midwest and couldn't handle that kind of adoration. And it's a fictionalized story about one of them just saying, 
I, mean, I got to get out of here. And it's about his brother's farewell to him, you huh. know, just saying. Yeah, yeah. So it was based on that. But you can take it many, many different of ways. Of course. I think know? that's what... And that's that's the beauty of songs, you know. Yeah. How, however you want to interpret it is I'm I'm totally down with, I'm happy with. Well, I think that's the magic of music in general, right? Yeah, is well, that... I, you know, I've said this a million times. Songs are like abstract art. If you don't understand what the song is about, then come up with your own interpretation. Don't look to me. I'll probably make something up. Well, it's also just how it moves you, right? I mean, you, you know, because there's that repetition of things, and certain songs will grow with you emotionally as you grow. Well, everybody gravitates to a song differently, yeah. you know, because it 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 might pinpoint an emotional uh, soft spot in their life, you know, whether it's their wedding, whether it's their first child, whether they were going through an emotional upheaval, a breakup at the time, and this song was something that comforted them, which is which is wonderful. I mean, I, I think that's terrific. So that person is probably going to associate that song with themselves and that upheaval in their life. And that's that's a wonderful fact. I mean, it's it's that's the way it should be. Yeah, also, I don't want to be selfish with the songs. Yeah, yeah. You know, take them and run with them. Once I've written them, once they're recorded, they belong to the world. Yeah, and I find that, like, even if it's not tethered to an event or an experience, that just the emotions of of the singing of a song, right, yeah, it doesn't right. have to be tethered to anything. That, like, it, it, one that still has a lasting effect. Well, I like to think that I like to think that our songs are timeless. And yeah, they, they reoccur over the decades. They crop up again. You know, and they, they keep doing it, and they've done it just recently. And um, what do you mean recently? Well, the, I mean Elton with Rocket Man. No, no, um, the Dua Lipa Elton. Hit, oh yeah, yeah, you know, which yeah, yeah. is a mashup of different songs. Yeah, um, bringing it to a completely new, um, gra- you know, contemporary graphic. So. Uh, that, that that in itself is pretty amazing. It's interesting, too, because of him and the nature of the lyrics, but also there's something about Elton being so front and center, you know, as a personality and as a piano player that lends itself to a certain timelessness. Like, he is unto himself. Even if the production is of a time, it's still an Elton John song. Well, I'd like to think that people find something in the song that is, you know, remains contemporary through yeah. the decades. Yeah. Because they really have, you know, stood the test of time and they still sound great. You know, the production on them yeah. is fantastic, which is probably why, you know, we haven't had a, a, a ton of cover versions of our songs. I mean, we've had plenty of cover versions, but probably not as many as you might imagine because people always say, well, the Elton John version is the ultimate, you know, I'm not going to try and top that. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Unless you go in, in a completely different direction with it, you know, but, and we've had great people cover our songs, everybody from Sinatra to Ray Charles. In fact, uh, the last track that Ray Charles ever cut in his life was one of our songs. Oh, really? Yeah. Which one? Sorry seems to be the hardest word. Oh, wow. Yeah. And did you uh, did you uh, were, have contact with Ray about it? No, but Elton did because yeah. Elton sang on it with him. Oh, yeah. So uh, Elton, in fact, Elton's got outtakes of it with conversations between him and Ray talking about the song and talking about other things as well. Yeah. So uh, that's pretty much a treasure because he died very, very soon after that. And... Uh, you know, in terms of, um, 
you know, managing success, do you feel that, you know, for you, it was, uh, easier to not be front and center, you know, cause you were like in the sense well, it's like, applicable to my nature. I would never have wanted it. I right. couldn't live in a fishbowl. You know, I'm such a individualist that I have to be able to walk down the street on my own. Yeah. I mean, if you look at Elton, Elton is probably, I would say, in the top 10 most recognizable people. It's the people opposite that, of that. Yeah, I mean, it totally the most recognizable yeah. person in the world. I mean, some people, like, can can walk down the street and be recognized, but it's, eh. Elton John can't walk down the street on his own. I mean, he just can't, yeah. you know. Um I could not do that. I mean, you know, he has he has structured his life where it works well for him, um, and I've structured my life where it works well for me. I like to be able to do things for myself. I don't have a staff, you know. I I'm managed by my wife. You know, I have a a, a temporary assistant sometime, not all the time. Yeah. You know, I've got one at the moment yeah. simply because organizing stuff for the book. Yeah. You know, uh, but no, I have to be able to, I don't want somebody driving me around. But also then, like, you know, as you went through whatever your uh, uh, kind of uh, party days, you weren't, uh, you know, the the press didn't get on you and you didn't have to, you know, throw... Well, I don't think they got on a lot of, on a lot of us in those days because yeah. social media didn't exist. Sure, you know, social media the way it exists now, you can't do anything. But the Stones took a hit. Yeah, but they were very high profile, and they probably did things that were uh, in the public eye. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, yeah. what I'm talking about is yeah. under out of the sure. out of the public eye. In the Caribbean, you, know, you could do anything you yeah, wanted yeah, yeah. to do. Yeah. Now you can't do anything anywhere. You can't say anything. You yeah. know, it's just, um, it, it's it's a completely different playing field now than it used to be. Sounds like you had a good time in the Bahamas. Oh, I had a great time. Yeah. I loved it there. I yeah. mean, it was kind of my second home. Um, I kind of outstayed my welcome ultimately. Yeah. But uh, um, which I did in a lot of places, I guess, at a certain point in my life. But I certainly made the most of it while I was at it. Never, never. No, no animals or human beings were hurt in, oh, good. in the um, uh, intent of, the, of of my indulgences. And you got to hang out with Oliver Reed. Yeah, yeah, right, <laughs> and and survived. Yeah, yeah. Was there ever a line that you got scared of not surviving? No, no, that's no, good. no. Um, I think the scariest thing I ever did was to uh, attempt to freebase in the drug days. Yeah. And I had the good sense to go, this isn't a rabbit hole I'm going down. Yeah. I know know where this ends. And I walked out of it and and escaped what could have been uh, my demise and was demise of others. Yeah. Well, either you like your heart about to explode or you don't. Right. Exactly. (laughs) And the fact that, you know, five minutes later you need it again. Yeah. It's not a, not a pretty thing to watch. I knew right away that that was not going to work. Now, how are you and Elton these days? Good? Great. Just talked to him the other day. Yeah, he's okay? Yeah, oh, he's good. He had actually had a fall the other day and had to spend a night. In, he's he's actually in the south of France right now Yeah. on vacation. He yeah. went on vacation, as he does at this time of the year always. But uh, he's got a especially well-deserved vacation after, you know, the end of the tour. Yeah. Um, but, Is this the last one? 
Yeah, this is it, man. Done. No more. He's done that before, though, hasn't he? No, not like, not like this. Oh, really? No, people say that, and it's that's a fabrication. Oh, okay. I mean, you know, everybody says that at some point. But uh, let me let me pose a a question to you here. If if he were to go back on the road, don't you think he would be just pilloried and crucified? After, Absolutely. Yeah. Absol- no, this is it. He's done. He's not going to tour anymore. No more world tours. If he ever did anything again, it might be a residency and do a like a deep cuts kind of thing. Oh, yeah. You know, which we've talked about. But it would be at home on home ground. Does he live here too? He's got a home here, but yeah. he, his main residence is in England. But he's okay. got a place in the south of France and he has a place in Atlanta also. Now, were there times like, and I know you wrote about this in the book, and people have talked about it before and made insinuations where there was uh, 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 a a sort of relationship um, tension between you two? No, I mean we. Uh, he always happily says that we've never ever had an argument, yeah. even even in the time that we stepped away from each other in the. I, I don't know when it was, the mid-80s. It yeah. was basically after the Blue Moose album, so yeah. whenever that was. Yeah. And that was just, uh, I think that was a geographical separation. You know, it became more pro- prevalent. Um, and also, you have to understand, at that particular point in time, we had broken every record there was to break. We yeah. had three albums to go into number one, the straight aisle to the box, which had never happened before yeah. in Billboard history. Yeah. Three in a row went straight in at number which one. Which ones were those? Um, Captain Fantastic yep. was the first. Um, uh, Rock, Rock of the, of the West Westies. is next and Blue Moves yeah, next. Yeah. And then, you know, he played two days at Dodger Stadium. We played the biggest stadiums in the States. You know, we'd had number one singles in a row it's like what do you do after that you know yeah. you've got to kind yeah. of step back and go okay we have to reassess the whole ball game here you know um you're not going to keep striking and you know you're going to strike out at some point and not keep hitting home runs and um i think just it, it just happened by osmosis naturally whatever way you want to say yeah and you know we took a break from each other for a while and he did an album with somebody else and i i did an album with alice cooper and worked with a couple of other people did you do jeff a starship song yeah i did um which one we built this city, oh, yeah. 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 Worst single of all time, apparently, <laughs> according to many magazines, which I wear as a badge of honor. Um, as the song has lasted way longer than some of the magazines that depicted it as the worst. And everybody knows the song. <laughs> yeah, and everybody knows the song. Yeah. And, you know, it's been good to my family, so yeah. I'm not going to... I say in the book, I think that... You know, I asked myself the question, if I hadn't written it, would I like it? And I go, no, but I did, so I stand by it. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so, and then we, by the same baby steps, we just got back together eventually and took up like it, it had never happened, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, and you keep, you know, there's still a lot of hits after that. Yeah, They absolutely. keep coming. Yeah, yeah. Um, and... You know, the thing is, because he's retired from the road doesn't mean he's retired from the studio. The yeah. guy's not going to sit still, believe me. So we've got plans, you know, to go back in the studio at some point. And um, 
you know, nothing written in stone yet, but it's like... Um, He's still playing with some of the same guys from the old days, like that original band? Well, yeah, they, they toured with him. Yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Davey, Nigel, they're both, you know, still yeah. in the band. Uh, I'm not sure what they're going to do now. Uh, I haven't talked to them about that. Um I plan on seeing Davey soon, so yeah. I'll see what he's up to. But I'm sure they'll find plenty of work. I mean, they're the best there is, so uh, there shouldn't be a shortage of jobs out there. So is there anything that—two questions, and they're just coming to me now. Like, you know, out of the entire catalog, which one do you go back to in your mind the most as being the a great example of what you do? I don't know. I mean, there's several. I mean, it's there's two ways of answering that. You know, people always say what's they always, it, ultimately sometimes always say what's the best song you've ever written. Yeah, that'd be you hard. Know? Yeah, and that's hard. Yeah. It's like I think Duke Ellington said the one that I'm going to do tomorrow. Sure. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, so, but as far as albums, I think it goes in stages. You yeah. know, I mean. I obviously I love Tumbleweed. I love Madman. Yeah. I, I think I current I, I recently re-listened to it simply because um they, you know, did the fiftieth anniversary version of it and I had sure. to listen to the the pressing, yeah. you know. And I thought, dang, this is really a good album. It really stands the test of time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like I actually think I like it better than Tumbleweed. Yeah. Um I don't know why, I but uh, I, I have a soft spot for Tumbleweed. Yeah. But then I love Captain Fan. I mean, Yellow Brick Road, obviously, yeah. Yeah. you know, is a bench point. Yeah. And sonically, that album is just phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, no if kidding. you hear a good pressing of it. Yeah. Gus Dudgeon is probably one of the most underrated producers of all time. Yeah. I think, if anything, our, we had the best sounding albums of the 70s. You yeah, know? for sure. I mean, there are a few other people that made great sounding records. But, yeah. Um, but then some of the later albums, I I, lo I love songs from the West Coast. Yeah. I think that's a really, really fine record. There's an album we made called Made in England, which is a good sounding record. Yeah. And got great songs on it. Um, and then of the later ones recently, I love the album we did with Leon. Uh, the yeah, Union. that's a good record. Yeah. yeah it's I, a great record. And I wouldn't have known that, that, that they had this... Uh, love for each other. Well, we toured with Leon yeah. in the early days. Leon was at the Troubadour in 1970. Right, yeah. And um, uh, once said to me in the studio, he said, I haven't told anybody this, but once when I saw Elton at the Troubadour in 1970, I turned to Denny Cordell and said, well, my career's over. <laughs> <laughs> which was a huge compliment. But I loved that album, and I loved an album we did called The Diving Board, yeah. uh, which was fairly recent. I thought that was a very adult, grown-up album on our part. I think it was, it was a return to simplicity, but it was very literary and, and very grown-up, I suppose, oh, is the best way of putting it. Do you feel like you've done everything you set out to do in, in terms of up to this point, musically no, and lyrically, no, I, yeah. I, you know, I. What's the I, dream? I'd, I'd, I'd love to make one more great, great record. Yeah, contemporary, but also inhabited by what it takes to make a great Elton John record, and what is the Elton John sound at the Elton John piano, the Bernie Taupin storytelling, yeah. but put into a sort of contemporary, 
And when I say contemporary, I don't mean machine-driven. Yeah. I mean just that it sounds fresh and new, but it sounds like Elton John. You ever think of bringing in any of this new generation of jazz guys? I don't think that would work mm. with us. Mm. Um, I don't think that would be Elton's thing, you know, mm -hmm. and he drives the bus when we're in the studio. Yeah. I leave those decisions up to him. Mm. Um, but... Uh, who knows? You know, yeah. it's it's always it's always an adventure, and as long as it as long as it's an adventure, then I'm in to be I I'm in for the exploration. It seems like like we were talking earlier about. I just remembered something that I was going to pick up on. I didn't. That you know, you you talk about song lyrics as being similar to abstract art, and and you your work is abstract, is it not? Well, I started in the abstract. Uh, genre, but multimedia. Kind it's of more stuff? multimedia now. I call them wall sculptures, mm. you know, because they're they're sort of built on plyboard and built on cedar blocks, and they're deconstructed instruments and burnt elements mm. and elements, found elements, and they're pretty interesting and they're pretty original. There's nobody out. The trouble with when I was doing abstract work was that you end up feeling like you're uh, purloining from your heroes. Yeah. And it's the same as music. You sure. start out emulating your heroes. Uh, it's like filmmakers start yeah. out emulating their heroes and probably still do. Any artist. Yeah, any artist does that, but you've got to find your own voice in the end. And I, that's what happened with me in art. I felt that my stuff looked too much like Hans Hoffman yeah. or Franz Klein. You were just painting? Uh, I, I was painting yeah. back then. Now paint isn't even... In, well, it it is involved occasionally if I throw some onto a, a piece, yeah. but... Uh, you know, there's this text work in mm -hmm. it. Um, oh, wow. it's, it's pretty interesting. It's pretty and do you do it Im impulsively? Do you like just Well, say I, I kind of got derailed by writing the book because I went, once I realized what I was doing by, you know, writing these prose pieces and I suddenly realized, oh, wait a second, I think what I'm doing is writing a book here. <laughs> so yeah. I took it seriously and yeah. knuckled down and then got it, got this deal through my agent in New York and got a very good deal on the book. And so I just put nose to grindstone and literally spent probably four or five hours a day for about two years working on the book. Wow, that sounds like the most disciplined you've been about writing. Yeah, there you go. I, <laughs> I can't argue with that one. <laughs> but it shows. I mean, you, you know, it really shows that it, there, there's something about it that shows that you were sort of like taking it seriously. And, and you, you know, yeah, I could tell you had like Graham Greene in mind in certain way in terms of, you know, your descriptions and, and just how you lay it out. It's not like a... Like uh, like we did this and then that and you know. exactly well as I make very clear at the beginning of the book I never intended it to be A to Z yeah you know I always wanted it to be nonlinear I mean the opening of the book is is pretty you know as it is yeah you know it's got about my childhood it's got about meeting Elton but then basically once Elton and I get out of London and get to the States, hence the title of the book, Scattershot. It's a bit like I loaded up the shotgun, yeah. put in the shells, pull the trigger, and 
wherever the sh- yeah, where yeah. the pellets fell is sure. where my narrative, you know, went on to. So it's geographical. It's all over. Is the that place. how you wrote it too? Um, yeah, I mean, in yeah, the absolutely. Sense of, yeah. So that's sort of in line with the way you I do wrote, things. I wrote what I felt like writing when I got to the word processor in front of me. What do I want to write about today? You know, the story of Graham Greene would come up, you know, and I go, I'm going to write about that today. So Because that's one of those stories. It's not just like a, a meeting thing. It's sort of like it had a, a lifelong kind of resonance. Yeah. Like, and it was... Oh, definitely. At the end, uh, by the... When I realized that I was, the funny thing is that I never really looked at my contract for the book, you know, because it says you're contracted for so many words and so many pages. I didn't even look at that. I just wrote till I was done. Yeah. And it ended up being over 800 pages. Oh, yeah. So you can understand that I needed a good editor to go, well. (laughs) But that's a great thing. Yeah. And if you trust your editor and you got to make something. Yeah, it, it was tough to make some of the decisions but I, I'm very, very happy where the the pieces fell. I mean, I, I think we came up with a very, very condensed version of those 800 pages. Yeah, I think people are going to love it. I hope so. I sure do. <laughs> and and what about, do you ever, like, uh, I mean, it's it's interesting how, you know, how kind of like, you know, culturally American in a lot of ways you are. Do you miss England? No. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. (laughs) Thanks for talking. Oh, thanks, man. Appreciate it. Right? What a life. Scattershot. Life, Music, Elton, and Me comes out next week, but you can pre-order it now wherever you get books. Hang out for a second, folks. People, don't forget to sign up for the full Marin if you want the bonus episodes we put out twice a week. We had an extra bonus chat with Todd Barry that we posted this week and next week some more movie talk with Kit, this time about Mulholland Drive. Sign up using the link in the episode description or go to WTFPod.com and click on WTF+. Next week on the show, author and activist Naomi Klein. I told you she was coming. She's on Monday. And Hannah Einbinder from Hacks is on Thursday. All right, you guys, I'm practicing my slide. I listened to a little R.L. Burnside. Uh, my timing's a little loopy, but I, I nail some of it. Indulge me.
more lives. Monkey in the Fonda. Cat angels everywhere. <laughs>